Travel is one of modern life's great gifts. The ease of our ability to traverse, explore and uncover new places has become a relative second nature. As we surmise the totality of our experiences, our reminiscences of travel tend to occupy the top tiers of our respective memory banks. Travel is the fuel that powers imagination. It confers the meaningful opportunity to connect with humanity in an array of unique ways. It's the starting point for immersion in nature and the illumination of our precious natural wonders. Travel is contradictory in the best possible ways. It's both deeply personal and something that is often shared. It's money spent, but riches gained. It yields the perspective of the small place we occupy on this planet and the context for our existence all at once. Perhaps most fundamentally, it's an incredibly fun way to occupy oneself. The Joel Found podcast talks with incredible founders, entrepreneurs, and creatives about their experience of travel. We'll hear the origin stories of their brands, how travel has played a part in their success, and get a taste of how they like to travel. Here's a chance to imagine you've strolled into the first class lounge and found a seat next to someone who's going places. To this observer, it looks as though Stuart Cantor has the best job in the world. A sought-after photographer who travels the world capturing incredible destinations like Capri, Marbella, St. Moritz, and more. Stuart has an uncanny ability to capture a perfect moment and transport the viewer to the centre of it. Evoking old-world glamour and a window into a world many only dream of, you can find Stuart's work in the chicest homes, on magazine covers, and in galleries around the world. On this episode of the Joel Found Podcast, we're joining the Jet Set. Stuart, welcome. Joel, thank you. It's uh, a pleasure to be here. As I said to the observer, it appears that you have the most incredible job. Am I right? It's pretty good. (laughs) So you travel the world, you capture these incredible images of some of the most fabulous locations. Tell us how you created the perfect career. So I I guess I'm lucky. I love what I do. Um, It started about nine years ago. This is sort of the lead up to where where I am now, where a good friend had a wedding extravaganza in Positano over about three days. And I just took loads of photos at the time, I wasn't a photographer, but I just love the aesthetic. I love landscapes. That part of the world's extraordinary. And um, took lots of photos just on the iPhone. And when I got home, I had a bit of a play around, did some editing and blew a couple of them up. And one of the photos was a beach club scene at La Fontalina in Capri. And as you're looking out from the restaurants, you've got sort of the tiered uh, terrace where everyone sunbakes. Um, and People kept on commenting on that, whether it's real estate agents in my home saying that's the most amazing photo. I'm like, yeah, do you want it? I just didn't think anything of it. It was a compliment, but I really didn't think anything further. If you fast track a couple of years, uh, my fiance Tess and I had just started dating and we'd both spent quite a lot of time living overseas and we were brainstorming how do we come up with some ideas or business ideas that we could start that would enable a bit of travel and, and flexibility to do whatever we wanted. That sounds like the Joel found story. <laughs> and that, that's essentially how it started. And I guess the rest is history. Going back a step, were you interested in photography as a kid? I wasn't a member of a photography club at school or anything like that, but I've always had a passion for interiors, design. I've always been reading all the magazines for since the age of 18. And I think that is, so I've really had a strong sense of what I love and don't love and I'd really known that it's black and white and I think maybe that has helped me form like the aesthetic that people know now. 
Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that because it's obviously a very specific and unique aesthetic. So we'll, we'll talk a bit more about that. Um, but tell us about the career you had prior to becoming a photographer. And, um, you know, you've talked about with me, but you were in property development. Obviously, there's a creative element to that, but arguably it's a big jump from a commercial industry like property to a creative and artistic one like photography. Yeah. Tell us about that transition. So I think, firstly, the hardest thing for me was going from managing creatives during the design process of property development to creatively putting yourself out there. And that was a process that really took me a while to get my head around. And I was doing a lot of meditating and yoga at the time. And I think that sort of helped me be positive about it and just go, yeah, this sort of feels right. So, t- so just t- tell us a bit about your property career because I want to sort of understand the relationship at the time to, to creativity and, you, you know, even this idea of creating or, you know, a building versus creating a moment. Yeah. Um, so t- t- talk a bit so, about that. So I could have studied interior design or, or architecture and I think I caught up with a family friend and they said, they study interior design. You've either, you can't learn that. You've either got it or you haven't got it. And if you're going to be great, you've got it already. Um, so as a result, I did have studied construction management. Didn't really enjoy it that but I enjoyed some of the business subjects, but just the how bricks and blocks go together wasn't wasn't for, wasn't for me. It was for someone else. So I spent a lot of, lot of time in nightclubs instead, <laughs> not a university. Um, and then I think. So I've moved away. I've already always had a real passion for high-end luxury interiors. And I sort of, my career progressed into over in London. I started as a surveyor and then worked for a uh, boutique uh, developer in Wimbledon, big, large homes, quite modern though. So sort of conservative on the outside, but these beautiful interiors inside. Then came back to Australia and uh, have been in that similar space. So working with great designers, both um, large commercial architects and sort of ultra high-end interior designers too, and just love that creative aspect of it. So it would have been a great grounding for the for what you've it is. spent cap- your photography career <laughs> capturing. But it's also, I think, as a, there's a, you obviously capture the moment, but I think there's obviously so much else to a business that I think working as a property developer you used to all the different trades and, and doing all of that side of it rather than it just going from an accounting job like it, it's sort of prepped me for what I'm doing now and so you know one thing that struck me when you told me about this career move would be how appealing it would be to a lot of people to sort of throw off the shackles of you know a more <laughs> conservative job and move into a creative field yeah um for people who might be thinking about the transition and obviously you didn't do it when you were in your twenties, you did it a bit later. Yeah. Is there advice you could give people who are looking to do the same thing? I think do it if you don't do it for the sake of doing it or you feel, oh, everyone's doing it on Instagram. Really do it because you love it. And if you love it, then you won't notice the extra hours you're doing. You know, you don't realize you're doing overtime because you'd be doing it anyway. Um, I would say don't talk about it. Just just do it. <laughs> There's so many people that I've got this great idea. I don't care, buddy. Just <laughs> what, what's stopping you? You just have to start and it is no perfect time. 
It's not going to be a hundred percent. You can't be a perfectionist, but you've just got to get it out there and then you tweak things as you go. Um, but also I started it as a side gig. So I didn't know if I didn't throw the towel in and say, this is what I'm going to do. And I didn't have a backup plan. I just like, okay, well, let's see. So took the when when I sort of decided, okay, this is something we're going to do. When I got a serious camera, went to Capri and Marrakesh, which were my first two series, created the series, um, edited them, built a website, put them online, and let's see. And then that was the start of it. Approached a couple of um, stockists and said, listen, I love your work. I think it would complement your sort of interiors. So and that was the start of it in Melbourne and Sydney. Amazing. And I guess you would have had to learn the industry, you know, the entire industry or? Uh, listen, I think it's, you've got a sense. I think the background of having 15 years in property development, you, you've probably made the mistakes in your 20s. And I think I'd, one, one benefit was I knew my sense of worth. I don't need to say yes to everyone. And the most things I say these days, there's no, sorry, I don't think it's for us. And, and that's okay. But I just had this feeling that everything seemed to come easily with that. And it didn't necessarily feel that way with property development, the work, everyone loved the work and it was just really growing from there. Fantastic. I think that's key sense of worth in life, but yeah. in work is essential. So thank you for that. So I want to um, drill into the style of photography a little bit, because obviously it's very recognizable. Um, it's very, um, I think we've talked about it in the intro, but um, it's got this old world touch to it. Yeah. Obviously it's centered on, um, you know, a, a part of the world Yeah. Um, that's very picturesque, but tell us about how you came to the style that you're known for. Listen, it wasn't a conscious decision. I think it's something that um, maybe evolved in the time previously from taking the photos in Positano and over a couple of years in that sort of just having a bit of a play around before formally deciding, right, this is something what I do want to do but when I launched that those first two series in Capri and Marrakesh it sort of hasn't moved from there so it was probably that period before then um, and I think it's also something we touched on with my background in my development is something that I've always considered how they would look in a home and I think muted colors definitely appeal both in terms of their they work well with most things. They're not punchy colors. They're, they're toned down. But it's also, I like the timelessness about it. I like the fact that which, something I, I really enjoy is when someone goes, when did this guy take this photo? And they can't work it out. And they're like, and I, I make a conscious decision not to include mobile phones, which is getting pretty much impossible these days. But I really am thinking timelessness, timelessness yep. in terms of a photo and and that evokes so many different things when people view it. And that, that's something I enjoy when someone looks at it. And it, 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 a lot of people have obviously been to those locations, so they'll remember those memories. But other people are just just love looking at the photos. And for me, uh, that's pretty cool. But how do you feel when you see one of your works in a home? It feels amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and to see, because people love them. Like, they really really do and i'm i'm relaxed and but i they're like all my children i don't have a favorite i can tell you which are the most popular in the market um but we've we've got like 
12, 13 series, like three, 400 photos out there. And some of the photos that I think are going to be unbelievable bestsellers aren't. And then I get a nice surprise when other people just, this is the, the, the next thing. And one photo, the Merc and the Moak nearly didn't make it into oh, wow. uh, the, the series and the owner of the hotel just like, why don't you just sort of see how it goes? And I said, don't, don't tell the creative <laughs> what to include. I said, why don't I print it out and see how it looks? And I said, yeah, it's amazing. And it's nearly sold out in the largest size. Um, actually, I, when, so I was actually going to talk about that because last year I was lucky enough to see your exhibition that you partnered with David Jones on in Sydney. Um, and all of the work is immersive and it's interesting. Achieve that timelessness, but, you know, basically, and, and this is why I love it for Joel Found, you, you can feel like you're in that moment as you were capturing it. Um, so so do you, is that an intent where you want people to feel like they're a part of the scene? I, um, so the original size um, of the print, that sort of what I intended for is to be about one point, when it's framed up, about 1.2 by 1.6 metres. That's, that's a big thing print it goes over the wall and for me that is the position where you really do get the effect so unlike other photographers we don't do small prints because I think my work is totally lost in the smaller size so our smaller size is 73 by 97 it's a decent size print and then we go bigger from there so for me it's all about impact and David Jones was this extraordinary space and we're lucky to have seven or eight of my really big two, one and a half by two meter prints there. And not many people would have seen that many of those really large ones in that same space. But the space was so massive and high ceilings and grand that it just felt amazing. Whereas you put those in a house and then that they really, well, unless you've, it's a really big home. So I always like to ask brand founders or creatives the work and the people that inspire them yeah. so can you tell us a few of the photographers or artists or you know interior designers who have inspired you along the way and i think because i've definitely got my own style um i'd look at other photographers for an appreciation of what they do and 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 not necessarily ideas but just just to push your boundaries in terms of creativity so there's, there's probably three photographers that I love there and that you might be surprised by the first couple. There's a guy called Tony Kelly. I don't know if you know his work. He's this Irish photographer uh, who's based in LA and he basically does this glam 90s uh, color pop photos, red lipstick, like ladies in high heels on skis, Ferraris on roofs, crashing into pools. Oh, yeah, I've seen his work. There, it's just amazing. And just following him, he's in St. Moritz at the moment. and I'm, It's killing me. I'm like, oh, I wish I was back there. Um, and just seeing all his creativity come through is just an inspiration. And I just I just love seeing. And he's just, he's like concert pianist. He, there's all these layers to him that I just enjoy following and, and seeing his work. Um, there's also an Australian photographer called Lockie Bailey. He's a high-end um, fashion house photographer. So the work that he does in Europe is just unbelievably beautiful photos of, for all the fashion houses. 
that I look at his work and just go and just appreciate the beauty of them. And for me, that's something that I take away and there's not enough beautiful things in the world. And if you can Agreed. create that yeah. and share it or maybe get an idea from something he's done, then it's amazing. And then of course there's Slim Aaron's. Now Slim obviously styled up heavily all his photos, but his composition of photo photograph, you'll have uh, people in the foreground, in the midground, there's a pool, and then there's a backdrop. It, it blows my mind every single, like if I see a photo I haven't seen before, is just an inspiration for how I might structure a photo. I don't look at necessarily the content, but just how he makes a photo so interesting because there's so many layers and depths. And I think they only really work and you really get the full effect on the larger sizes. When it's smaller, you can't appreciate the level of detail there is in these photos. And this, that's sort of something that comes through, I think, with my work too. No, it's, it absolutely does. And that's a great insight. I do think, you know, to hold people's interest, you have to have layers. I want to ask you now about my favorite topic, travel. Yep. Um, t- tell me about, you know, travel as a part of your life from, from the get-go. So um, I, when I was five, uh, my family moved to London and we lived there for a few years. So I'm fortunate that travel has always been a part of my life. And when you're in London, particularly mum and dad were in their forties and I was five and younger brothers and sisters who traveled Italy, Europe, the States, and it just seemed that's just part of my life and has always been a part of my life and it feels really normal doing what I'm doing now. I think maybe because I did that back then and there's no like, oh, leaving Australia and got to do all these things and well, they don't speak English. Do you know, like for me, second it, nature. it's second nature and it feels really comfortable being in the Marbella Club yesterday and then back in Melbourne two days later and then jump. Like it just, it it feels like my life. I, I feel the same and I think it's definitely a, a character type and it's an inclination and I think it's got to do with broad curiosity and, you know, um, probably open-mindedness. The London thing makes sense. I wondered why you had that international accent. So in my, I think at 23, I went back to London and lived in London for eight years and my Aussie mates are like, because I lived in London at five for uh, three years, I had an English accent that apparently went really quickly. When I went, but when I went back at twenty-three, it came straight back in, and and my mates are like, "What's with the accent?" Mate? <laughs> <laughs> and to the point where, and also when I was the, working in London to start with, I sat opposite a couple of South Africans for five years, and I picked up oh, I wow. think their mannerisms. And one's from Durban, and one's from Joburg, and. And like some friends are saying, mate, you sound more South African than you do English or Australian. So I still have those mannerisms and the uh, accent is probably a bit softer than it was, but there's definitely, it's not an Aussie claim. So in, in a professional context, what part has travel played? So you said you moved back to London at 23. Was that a work move? That was a finished university, let's get as far away from my parents as possible. And on that, sort of traveled for about three months uh, before hitting London. We sort of did a month in Spain, a month in Morocco, and then a month in Italy before arriving in London. And that was eight years? That was eight years. And when you're in London, you travel well. But that's just 
nothing for work, just uh, travel because you love traveling when you're in Europe. I mean, what I find fascinating about London, and I think you spoke to it a bit before, is you've got this incredible heritage, architectural heritage, and it speaks to quality and, and longevity. It means there's a lot more density to what they create architecturally, whether it be commercial buildings or private homes. I mean, I do think it's a bit of a shame that our older homes aren't protected as much Agreed. as they are. You look in some of the suburbs in Melbourne and Sydney that people look at the value of the land rather than the value of the these beautiful old homes that, that and sadly it's the developers will come in and, and uh, knock it down and build more. So I think the, the more time you spend in ancient places, the more you appreciate the, the, the heritage of the built environment. Yeah. So, yeah, I agree. So, obviously, now you're at this point in your career and travel is integral because you're capturing places all over. Yeah. How do you select the destinations that you shoot? So, I'm drawn to these old world, jet set, glamorous locations that you've seen in, whether it's the Slim Aaron's books and that the, these locations that are still around have been drawing people for 50, 60 years, these generations of people visiting it. And for me, the, it's the appeal that there's obviously something magical about these locations that people just keep on going back. Obviously, there's some amazing hotels, but there's obviously more than that. It's either the way of life or the architecture or culture. And for me, that's the appeal. And these glamorous locations... Uh, that's the top of my list of um, what what I've drawn to. And then we sort of go from there. We work, maybe pick a couple of hotels and then maybe some famous restaurants and then everything fits in. And I imagine once you sort of start uncovering parts of that world, it unlocks the next the next place. Yeah. And it's also, we've we've done 10 or 11 summer series in Europe now. So we're now sort of, starting to think, well, what else is there with a similar location and similar atmosphere, but in, di in different spaces? So on that note, um, and like I said, best job in the world, 11 summers in Europe, <laughs> um, how do you plan, the, the pre-plan the shoot? Do you mood board, do you sort of set a really um, clear itinerary and then decide exactly what you're planning to capture, or is it a little bit more ad hoc than that? So I guess the mood board might be um, digital on my phone that it's not organized. If I see something that I like or it's an image, then I'll just save it and it goes in the favorites and it's a point of reference. But I think for me, once I decide on a location, I will then really delve deep into, okay, what are the best hotels there? What are, are there? Is there a location that is famous because of the hotel or something else? Um, and that it's grown around that or is there and really decide firstly why do people go there so why do people go to the restaurants nearby and then <clears throat> once I'm comfortable um, with yeah I think there could be some really interesting shots I'll get on Google satellite and look at the topography and work out yeah this is something that is going to be really easy or this is going to be a disaster because I'm, I'm not sure if most people, I don't shoot on drones. I shoot with a camera in my hand and I try 
to look like a local. I don't want people because it the work isn't styled up. I want people to be relaxed. Like carry a tripod. If someone sees a tripod going up, they're going to be complaining to someone that why is this guy taking a photo? So people are in my photos, but there's no close up. So I'm not concerned about the privacy factor. And also try not to generally have close-ups, close but also try and avoid having children. Children are great for an authenticity point of view that you know if they're in the photo, then it's just going to feel really natural. But just there's a privacy factor that I'm aware of in these locations too because people are on holidays. Have you ever had anyone? I, I Actually, Pasalakwa, which is the new hotel that opened in Lake Como, it's really intimate hotel because there's 23, 24 suites and um, it's private. It's locked. You can't, people aren't coming and going. You can't come into the hotel. So people, you get to know people and they're like, um, is there a photographer here? And they said, famous photographer. Oh, okay. And then they back off. They're like, he's photographing the hotel. He's very famous. And that's all that was said and people are like, Okay, but I actually feel I feel more awkward in the more intimate spaces than because I'm not a dick. Like I know these people are on a <laughs> holiday, uh, but I still want the shot. So it's that balance between okay, am I going to see them again? Um, and and just and there's that boundary that like sometimes I get the best shots when I've got like five minutes to go. Like okay, I've got to just yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so on that note, um, tell us about a typical. Uh, shoot day because I think you were telling me about St. Moritz and you have to get up before dawn and you know you're shooting thousands of shots to get so I think a typical summer afternoon shoot for me and again it depends on the location so if we're in Ravello which we were in August last year then it was really like it was before it was that early sun not sunrise but just sort of soon after and that was the, I found beautiful light for that location but generally and it's also the topography because you want the sun on the location that you're photographing you don't want it in shadow that's sort of sort of um what uh, sort of bread and butter things that you're going for so depending on how your shooting is positioned but ju it's just say it's an afternoon shoot morning will be just a bit of it trying to get some exercise um maybe some non some other business work um, and then just enjoying the day with, because I'm there with Tess and my fiance and we had our two-year-old son, Harry, with us more recently. So you've got to, it's a balance between being stressed about getting all the shots um, and still you're in these extraordinary places, having the presence of just, you know what, I'm in Positano, I'm in Lake Como, wherever it might be, and really enjoy the fact that you're there because it's not worth worrying about the work that will come if you're there long enough and you've planned enough but to also just these are i know that these are really special locations yes yeah, so being, so being present being present to still enjoy it and not be too stressed about what is happening or what hasn't happened yet i think i'm probably not having a crew probably helps that so you're not responsible for i would love a crew <laughs> i would love someone to uh, download all the photos and get them prepped and, and make sure all the batteries are charged and keep all the lens polished and just hand the camera. Like I dream about that day when that happens. <laughs> I'm sure you'd have a lot of applicants given uh, where you're shooting. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, it's that balance between, okay, well, if you did have a crew, then would I still get the same shots? Because people might notice that, hang on, there's something going on here. That's the point you made earlier, right? Yeah. Yeah. So what I say, some of these hotels, the privacy is a a real factor um, that they will just say, okay, well, I just said, listen, you just, people will just think I'm a guest. I don't carry a camera bag. They're in a, like all the cameras are in beach tote. I just think, oh, his bag looks really heavy and he pulls out a telephoto lens or something. So for me, getting authentic photographs where people are relaxed is what I do. Um, They're not people, I don't know if people know that, that my work is not styled up. So if it was styled up, then it would just wouldn't have the feel I think that people love about it. So, but as a result, you can't tell, you can't clear a pool if there's someone that maybe shouldn't be in the, in the shot. Um, so it's that balance between, um, it's not perfect, but, and it's sometimes being patient and waiting, um, a little bit. Um, some of those pool shots at the Marbella club are incredible. And like, it's interesting to think about, you know, what might be going on and, you know, how to avoid things in the shot that you don't want to get so the, the, we did one um the first series the marbella club series was really special we did a one shoot which is probably the closest thing to a styled up shoot we've done where um the owner jenica arranged the original families that had strong links to the old hotel and so the original general manager count rudy is this 85 year old real count real counts um, I think he's, yeah, real counts. And so there's this layer of the Marbella Club. It was founded by a European playboy prince and that the old Marbella Club was full of European royalty and Hollywood stars. And, and then there's the next generations that have just come on and are still enjoying it. But that shoot, were, everyone in the shoot were either family members or their father was the consigliere of the original owner and, they just invited everyone to catch up at the, they've got the private um, Villa Del Mar was the sec, the residence of private residence of the second owner. And they now part of the hotel. And I think you can rent it for like 80,000 euros a night or something like that, but <laughs> it is extraordinary. And they do film sets and they, everyone just caught up for drinks and had a day on the pool. And I was up on, um, a higher level in the um, in the villa taking photos and it was I could have taken thousands of photos but we took a few hundred and it was just extraordinary wow um so I wanted to ask how you unwind after a shoot day you're in these incredible places <laughs> I imagine it's not that hard but what what so, would you typically so do I found that three Aperol spritz is the magic number <laughs> <laughs> because we will then go to dinner and then each day I photo edit because I've got to know if I've got the shots. Sometimes we're not there for long enough. And, um, so at night time I will edit and that could start anytime from like 10 o'clock till 2am. And that, that, that sort of is so for me coming home is a break and a holiday because when you're on location and you're editing and you're also still running the business, um, it's, it's full on probably a little bit of the secret to the people who do think it's a perfect career. It's still, it's still work. <laughs> so you predominantly shoot summer and, you know, obviously that comes through in the work, but you, 
do shoot winter destinations as well. Is it a really different experience? So uh, there are a few different factors, I think. So the St. Moritz shoot was our first Alpine series and we were there for three weeks. And so the, there's a few different things that are totally different to a European summer series. The, the, there's just the predictability of the weather. So you're in the Alps. You might get a couple of days of snow. You might then get a couple of days of overcast. And, and for me, I need the sun out. So whether it's in the Alps or the Med, I need the, for my work to pop. There's no, well, there can be clouds, but I need the sun shining and that brings my subjects to life. Otherwise, they'll just look really flat. And so that's something that needs to be considered. There's also, I'm carrying, because I don't have a crew, I'm carrying all my cameras in a backpack on my back that I'm sort of skiing around with. So just the logistics of getting around, it's not like, oh, yeah, put on the swim shorts, jump on a Vespa, <laughs> with your bag and, and pull in wherever you want. You've got to get there. And also, I hadn't been to St. Moritz before. So becoming familiar with the mountain and just working out. I'd obviously done my research as to what I wanted to photograph, but how do I get there? Yeah. It's like, okay, well, um, but I love the Alps and I love skiing. And I was skiing for 21 days in a row in Switzerland. So... So are you, going to, are you planning to shoot more of those types of locations? I would love to, but it's just so hard um, planning everything in Australia. So but maybe if we're living overseas and it's easy to go from London to uh, Zurich or wherever. And on that note, are there any places that you haven't shot that you'd like to? So I believe it or not, I've never been to South America. So this is just a whole nother world of natural beauty and there's also old world there so um that is top of the list Stuart, i wanted to drill into a few of the locations you've shot because we're hatching some plans um to create joel found journeys based on your work which is really exciting so let's talk about the summer destinations let's talk about the amalfi coast the french riviera having personally scratched the surface of that part of the world try and describe it for the joel found listeners so the amalfi coast is this dramatic coastal road, probably quite similar to the Great Ocean Road, the people that haven't been there, except there are terraced, pastel-coloured buildings from the top of the hill all the way down to the water's edge. And there are restaurants basically on the road, full of Italians that are, I'd say, they've just got this, particularly that part of the world, they've just got this relaxed sense of hospitality and love of life and they're not stressed they're, they're, they're it's just this intoxicating feel that when you get there i mean the the weather when you're there in summer it's extraordinary it's hot um there are different towns whether it's positano Praiano, malfi and then further down that all have different feels and atmosphere to it i mean positano and capri are sort of the really famous ones but um, wherever you look and wherever you, I mean, I'd love just to get on a Vespa and drive along. And it just, we were back there in August and it'd been I think, four or five years since we'd last been there. And it just, it was, it was unbelievable and blew me away. And I, I go to some pretty nice places and it's still just still, I still had the, oh my God, that's just unbelievable. So you just have to, 
And some people might choose to go on the on the shoulders, where it's maybe not quite as busy. Um, but I mean, I, I need the people in them. I need the Italians. I go like if I'm doing a shoot in Italy, it's got to be in August when the Italians are on holiday, um, because they're at the beach at nine a.m. and they're not moving until probably six, and they're just that that's part of their culture, particularly during that sort of August period. I do think the season's now extending well beyond peak. Yeah. Um, and I think what's interesting is post-COVID, people are inclined to travel whenever they can yeah. um, and take advantage of opportunity. And the weather is good pre and post-peak. I totally. guess it's just about when Europeans can take their summer holidays. Yeah. So it's interesting. I think that what's exciting is a lot of these um, places are increasing traffic through what was typically the off season. Yeah. So, so, I mean, it means that, you know, you might be able to achieve a visit to a place that might've been out of reach prior price wise. Yeah. And it's also, you, you, everyone's probably a bit more relaxed. Um, there are not big groups coming through. There's, there might not be those high value people that are there because, and you might get more attention or you're not having to wait for a restaurant or, and it's particularly August is can be quite humid, particularly around the Mediterranean, Ibiza or Italy, and you might enjoy the climate a bit better. And so my understanding is these towns primarily tourist destinations. Yeah, that's the main business. That's the economy. Yeah. So it, it creates a really unique sense of community. You've got a town that sprung up to support that so tell us a bit about the towns themselves and the people and you know how you experience those places so i would recommend making an effort when you're there um i'm not fluent in italian but i know enough to basically have a simple conversation um introduce myself order three spritzes hi <laughs> how are you doing can i have the bill please yeah. um where's the taxi kind of thing um but I just, for me, I found this time around, we, and we were in Italy for six weeks, and I think just that concentrated period of time, make an effort, ask, engage with whoever you're talking to. And I found this time around, ask the waiter or whoever, what's, what's their name and introduce yourself. And that's a really disarming factor. And then if, if there's a chill, it's generally pretty gone. Uh, and I think we also had our two-year-old son who was generally pretty disarming or the old Italian nonnas would fall over themselves and is quite comfortable to be looked at. <laughs> so there's, I think if you really make an effort, people appreciate it and I think you'll get more out of it and maybe less, some people have bad experiences, but maybe they're putting something else out there and they're just getting it back. And do you find that you meet other tourists and other guests of the places that you stay? I, I mean, I'm, pretty friendly i'll talk to anyone um we meet a lot of people we meet all the layers of the businesses if they're working with the hotels from the hotel owners down to all the levels of management and if we are on location and i'm working with one of the hotels we might have a press person with us and something that i've loved is may is unbelievable is i'll meet some of the original some of the business owners in the area and so if we're in um, Portofino, I was meeting basically an old farmer who had sort of one of the leading organic farms in the area and a real sense of community. And just, I know how lucky I am to 
be meeting these people and they're so open because of who I'm standing next to and they know that well they're introducing me then that that that's they wouldn't otherwise do that so I sort of walk away from that and those are the special moments that I really cherish particularly when I'm traveling I, I agree and I think any chance you have to actually learn another person is really nourishing so that's amazing that you you get access through the relationships, which um, is something we're looking to share through some of these experiences. Yeah. So let's talk about a couple of them. So uh, one of the destinations we've been working on is Tarmina, which is in Sicily, and you've done Sicily series, which is beautiful. But yeah. um, Tarmina is super famous at the moment, <laughs> thanks to the White Lotus. So I want to talk about it as a, as a place to visit. I've, I've been lucky enough to go there, but it's unbelievable if you think about what White Lotus has done to, to really open up that destination. For those that don't know, Taormina is this beautiful medieval town up on a hill, basically in, in Sicily that looks towards Mount Etna. And so you're looking down to the water and then if you cast your eye to the right, then Mount Etna is in the background. And so wherever you look is extraordinary. And they've got the Greek sort of Roman amphitheater behind uh, Grand Hotel Timio, which it, literally you walk out of Timio, turn right, and you go walking up. Like there's, It's unbelievable. I mean, Positano and the Amalfi Coast is breathtaking, but Tamina is just this magical town too. And for me, we were fortunate to be there during the, Europe, uh, the Italian sort of holiday, which I think is the middle of August. And so rather than being there and it's full of Australians and English and Americans. It's full of Italian families on holiday. And for me, that that's the special, the uniqueness, kids running around everywhere and just having, uh, just families enjoying it. That, that for me, that's, that, that's the time. And I know it's the busiest time, but when you see the Italians enjoy themselves in Italy is pretty special. And so tell us about Timio, um, which is a Belmont property, and we're actually yep. working with them to develop something that's Stuart Cantor branded. And it's you've shot it. It's incredible hotel. It's um, But tell us uh, about the experience of staying there and what you've sort of got planned for Tamina. Timio is you walk out of the hotel and you're in the center of Tamina. So you can enjoy Tamina and it, it is beautiful and amazing and old and spectacular but you've also got to enjoy these grand hotels that you're you just you need to relax and be pampered at these some of these places the pools are unbelievable i mean belmont or any of these independent hotels they're famous for their service the italian hospitality and level of professionalism like there's nothing's a problem at these hotels, nothing's a problem. It's unbelievable. You sit and relax. It's Timio is one of my favourite hotels for sure. Um, so you sit back and you're either, what do you do? Do you walk through the tiered gardens or do you go down to uh, the pool or let's go down to Villa San Andrea, which is their sister hotel, which is the beach club, and you can actually be on the beach and take it, take it in, and then get the car back up. And um, in Tamina, you've got a few recommendations for restaurants. You've mentioned Vitolo Ostretto. Can you tell us about that restaurant? It's, a, it's amazing. So actually, so fortunately for my fiance Tess, her birthday is in the middle of August, which generally means that her birthday is celebrated in 
the Marbella Club or wherever we might be at the time. And we had her birthday there. And to get it, to it, you've got to walk through the narrowest lane in Taormina. So you pretty much have to squeeze by. So there are people queuing up to get photos there. Then you walk past the mall and then this magical terraced restaurant. And we're really lucky that the experiences I have with these hotels, we're treated like not rock stars, but we were given, they, they look after us. But this time it was extended to some of the, the other places that they recommend. And you also talk about cannoli in town. <laughs> so if you are from here, you're testing my memory now. So if you're in Grand Hotel Timio, you walk out, you walk into sort of the main piazza, and then I think there's a place on the left and had this pistachio. I think uh, it may have been after dinner, Tess and I went for a walk and there's this queue. like or you, And it's locals queuing. You know, if there are locals queuing, then something's good there. And they just brought straight out of the oven this pistachio uh, cannoli. And it was, I've never had anything like it. So um, you, you just, I think you need to forget about the calories and you're in, you're not going to have anything like that anywhere else in the rest of the world. So you, when, the, when the nonna hands it to you and says, with a smile and joy, you're going to enjoy <laughs> it. Um, and so you've talked a little bit about the Marbella Club as another destination that we're working on. It sounds phenomenal. So you've exhibited there, got an incredible relationship with that, with that place. Tell us about it. I think you said to me once that Marbella Club was there before Marbella itself was a thing. Yeah, so there was this um, European Playboy Prince, um, who's part of part of the sort of the original Jet Set, who discovered this paradise that was essentially the Marbella Club, and he bought this piece of land and um, developed. He had actually, I think, done a bit of university study in the states, and he loved the idea of the low-rise motel. So we're talking fifties. Right. The low rise motel. So he wanted to create a similar atmosphere where his friends could drive in, park their car, and then stay above. And that is essentially what's being created there. So there's this low rise garden of Eden. And so it was that was the fifties. So you can imagine with um sort of sort of seventy years of growth, you've got these beautiful private established gardens. They've generally kept it pretty low and they've got villas all built around it. So if you want to go with your family, you can book out a villa and that's basically the full thing. And I actually think there are some people um, during lockdown uh, in COVID, people moved into the hotel. They're like, why, why, why? If I can't go to restaurants, I'm going to move into the hotel and be looked after. And it's this. So in the 50s and 60s, it was renowned for the destination where European royalty, Hollywood movie stars, um, the famous nightclub Annabelle's uh, from London would decamp to the Marbella Club for the summer. And all of these times were heavily photographed by Slim Aaron. So that gives you the atmosphere. And then now it's just for me to go to some of these locations that there's so much history. We've all seen the photos. It, it, it's a really magical for me. I could, I just still feel amazing when you're sort of taking these photos at these locations 70 years on. Well, and also I think one of the things that you've described to me is, and it's a family business, but the new owner or the, so the new owner. So, um, Jenica, who's our age, um, her father passed but away. 30, she's 35. <laughs> she's 35. 
Um, and she was they were really acutely aware that all our guests are old and they're in their 80s and how do we draw, they're all dying. Like how do we draw in what's the next card to get their kids that used to holiday here, but they're going elsewhere. And she came up with the idea of the original um, property that Prince Alfonso, his house, they've turned it into it and it's in the middle of the property, turned it into a kid's club. And it's takes some foresight, I think, because a lot of hoteliers would think, well, hang on, what's the return? But they say so they've got, I think, perfumeries, cooking, uh, music, all these different things that it's now people are choosing. I had someone come up to me the other day, just go, I can't wait to go. I've got to go to the Marbella Club. I can't wait to check out the kids' club. So it's literally take the kids in the morning and then you can, you know that the experiences they're going to get, you know, it's, you can't, can't compare. So I, I think also what I like about that is it's, it speaks to this understanding that what luxury is, is changing, Yeah, you know, and it's, she sounds really dynamic in the way she's approaching the luxury market. Well, even more so. So that was sort of one project and more recently they've developed some new restaurants there, but they were approached by Chanel. And so Chanel wanted to do their first summer pop-up and it would have been the first pop-up in Spain. So the Marbella Club is the most famous hotel in Spain, but it's sort of, it's still in Marbella and you either go there or you don't. Some people will choose to go to Italy or Ibiza or wherever, or France, but you'll walk into these stores and you'll have the Stuart Candor exhibition on the left and you've got Chanel. And Louis Vuitton, and I must say, it felt pretty good. That's great company. <laughs> so um, I want to want to drill into one more destination that you've shared with us, and yep. we're we're building um we're building another journey to Pasalacqua in Lake Como. So you've described it to me basically as heaven. So I want you to tell <laughs> everyone about how so. Well, so Lake Como is a pretty special place for me. Wherever you look, so I'm a, a essentially a landscape photographer, and I. With my background in property development, I am drawn to the aesthetic. You're basically, villas and architecture will anchor any of my photographs, and then there are people and pools. And, but there's always a nice view in the background. So wherever you look in Lake Como is unbelievable. But imagine a grand English manor that some um, family member has and it's in Lake Como, and it's 400-year-old Villa uh, Villa Pasolacqua. It's housed everyone from Churchill to Bellini. I think he was, wrote some of his famous operas there, full of Marana glass. It's it's actually really hard to describe, but, but also because there's only, I think, 25 suites, it's not open to the public, so you can't go and have dinner there or lunch there, so it's gated this really intimate, relaxed feeling. And as a result, you probably get to know some of the guests a bit better than you might otherwise would have. But it's still in Lake Como. So you've got the grounds, the property, which is unbelievable. And then as you walk down through, wherever you look, you're looking at Lake Como. And tell us about the food, because obviously it's Italy, so... It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. But there's not one, one, one thing is bad about that experience. And one further thing that I loved and is that when you go into the hotel suites, 
They've got um, musical selections, but it's all pre-recorded. So you can say, I'd like some jazz and they've based or classical music. And you just switch a dial rather than, okay, let's try and connect your Bluetooth and play some music. Music is already playing when you walk into the hotel room. And it's, it's that layer of thought. And I hadn't seen that before. I'm like, I love this place even more. Can I have this mu- musical playlist? It's, it's actually some of those really subtle things that make all the difference. Yeah. Sounds incredible. We're, we're going to be sharing all of those incredible places with the Joel Found brand community soon. So yep. thank you for sharing them with us. Yep. I like to end every episode with a quick fire question round about yep. travel. So really the first thing that springs into your mind um, when I sh- say um, the following questions. Yeah. Uh, favorite hotel anywhere? Oh, you can't. I, you've, I've got to say four. <laughs> so I think we'll, we'll start with the Marbella Club, Pasolacqua, Grand Hotel Timio, and Hotel de Capi in Rock. I mean, for me, it's the heritage of some of these places that really resonates. Um, I think it's fair that you have four given what you do. So <laughs> I have, no one else has had four. Uh, best meal you've had on a work trip? Okay, so Grand Hotel Tremezzo has a Marchese restaurant in it. And Marchese was basically the founder of Italian modern cuisine. And I think he's the first Italian chef to be given three Michelin stars, which I think he actually chose not to accept because he was all about the customer for him rather than a rating. And they do a saffron risotto with gold leaf on it. And when you have this, you're given a certificate of authenticity that you've had this. And so we've got them at home. And I have never had I'm not a foodie, but I like food. It's unbelievable. Like I'm having this, I'm like, this, and it's apparently the delicate balance between obviously the wine, the cheese and the flavor and saffron is obviously. And the place. Place, but the, but this is like one of the most, well, this is one of the famous Italian dishes that I'd never heard of before. Most beautiful city. Rome. Favorite airport. Naples. Wow. Naples, it's the gateway to the Amalfi Coast. So for me, it's like what it's, then I'd probably say Cannes or somewhere like that. It's for the, the smaller regional ones that when you're arriving, there's that excitement of what's what's about to come. On their note, favorite airline? Singapore. Strangest place you visited? When I was backpacking before arriving in London, I did a month in, in Morocco and we arrived at this random destination destination called Ifran up in the Atlas Mountain. And they basically created a French Alpine resort in Morocco. And like, so you see this architecture, there's just, there's, it's like, okay, I love the Alps, but um, it was just totally unexpected. Got to drill into that one. Yeah. Um, friendliest country? Italy. Favorite clothes to travel in? Uh, I'll go smart casual with trainers. Beach or pool? Both. Uh, can you work on planes? Of course. I have to. Uh, who's the most interesting person you've ever met on your oh, travels? Wow. So there's probably a few, but I mean, particularly in terms of what I do, um, and there, there's a journalist called Nick Fox. I don't know if you know Nick. Uh, Nick is an English journalist that sort of specializes in luxury products. He writes for the FT. Nick's I didn't know this at the time. Nick is the owner of the Moak, the Merc and the Moak, and he spends a month or two months every summer at the Marbella Club or in Marbella, and he's at the Marbella Club. 
But Nick, as a journalist, is he was the last person to interview Slim Aarons before he died. And I thought that's a pretty cool thing. And I've worked with Nick, and Nick is actually featured in some of the Marbella photos um, because he's written the book. And he's, the, he's the man in the pink, pink pants and the, and the red top. But he's just got this he, – he's just done a book on Patek – like he, I think he's done written books on Bentley. Like he's just got these ideas and just, he hadn't spent any time in Australia. So he's just inquisitive, asking me these questions. And it was, um, and we were fortunate to have a dinner with him. And actually Pippa Holt was in town at the time. So we all had a dinner there together with uh, Jenica. And it was one of the nicest dinner parties I've had in a long time. Do you pack Light or heavy? Sadly, heavy. <laughs> I guess yeah. here. And um, where's your next destination? South America. Stuart, thank you so much. Uh, that was fantastic. Uh, can't wait to bring some of these journeys to life and share those with the Joel Found audience. For more information on Stuart's work and to have a look at his incredible images, visit stuartcantorphotography.com um, and we'll put that obviously on the link and we'll see you. Um, see you next time. Joel, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure and uh, look forward to it.